Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Dairy Farmer's Digest. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm super excited to have a legendary professor from the University of Illinois on the podcast. Uh, I know you don't need much introduction, Mike, but uh, I think you're pretty well known around the dairy industry here around the world and in North America, especially. But uh, yeah, like I said, I'm excited to have Dr. Mike Hutchins on from the a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois. So Mike, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the audience and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your your background and your history and how you got to where you are today. Very good, Keith. Well, thank you very much. First of all, thanks uh, very much for allowing me to appear on your program today and hopefully we can share some ideas and thoughts, some, some direction that uh, people that listen to maybe we should try that or gee that'll never work where we live as far as that goes but anyway uh, i'm mike hutchins and i grew up on a um, grade holstein 70 cow dairy farm back in the the 1940s uh, near green bay wisconsin for some of you packer fans you'll probably know where it is and if not you'll have to get a big map to to find green bay wisconsin (laughs) anyway i uh, grew up on the farm with my dad and we uh, milked cows we didn't have a pipeline so we got to carry all the milk I can remember cans, but I never, I wasn't big enough to lift cans. And by the time I was big enough, we had a bulk tank. And so we did that. I ended up uh, going to the University of Wisconsin and Madison and got my, all my degrees there, uh, including uh, a, a bachelor's, master's and PhD. My master's was in mastitis detection. Actually, it was kind of neat because we measured the DNA content of milk, which reflected the level of somatic cell count. And, and that was being used uh, some testing labs. It was fairly laborious, but it was very sensitive as far as that goes. And then my PhD had to do in the dairy area of dairy nutrition, primarily uh, using uh, uh, soybeans and uh, methionine hydroxy analog. And we got that data published. Luckily, I had a chance to go to the University of Minnesota and worked there for eight years and enjoyed that. Uh, learned a lot. Trust me, coming out of grad school, uh, nobody wants to know about the urea cycle. They want to know why do my cows not want to eat this feed or factors <laughs> like that. So it was it yeah. was a, a learning experience as far as that goes, Keith. And, uh, and then I also had a chance, unfortunately, one of our staff members passed away. So I was one of the few people that were on a judging team. And so I got a chance to coach the University of Minnesota judging team. And uh, back in 1968, the team won the national contest, which was really great fun. Uh, then we uh, moved to uh, the University of Illinois back in 1971, headed up their uh, dairy extension program. There was four of us at that time at this and and then uh finished up my career there uh working there about 32 years and uh, uh with minnesota that ends up about 40 years of experience retired in 2010 so retirement is good keith uh, yeah i tell everybody uh be thinking about that and uh we have a chance to stay active uh, in that i still do some writing in uh hordes dairymen and webinars for hordes dairymen we also do some uh, opportunities to speak uh, at uh, meetings. In fact, I've been up in Canada. I was at the uh, Canadian Dairy Expo here uh, just before Easter and uh, met some wonderful people up there as well. So it's been a fun career. A lot of opportunities and chances to try new things and teaching online continues. I continue to teach online uh, in, uh, believe it or not, Keith, five different languages. And so- uh, Oh, really? New experience, yeah. Now you ran a like. Do they does the University of Illinois still run the program like they do a dairy science or dairy management program? I knew you were you were a professor or teaching part of that, like an online course. Yeah, we uh, we we developed a, a, a six online courses along with Dr. Dick Wallace, who also left the University of Illinois, and you could actually get a certificate. And that is very popular with, especially with some of our students and some of our uh, foreign students, because they could use that uh, on their on their risk for promotions or for that. So we offered that for about twenty years. We do, we launched the first online dairy uh, online class, and now that has been no longer. Uh, made, once I retired, they decided to terminate that program. But interesting, the Santa Fe Institute at Brazil picked it up, and we okay. re-recorded all the new. 
in 2020. So all brand new modules. And of course, that's in English. And of course, as you can appreciate, they translated that into, into Portuguese. And mm -hmm. finally, the Santa Fe Institute said, oh, if you can translate that into Portuguese, we can also translate that into Spanish, into Italian, into Arabic. And they're hoping to do it for Chinese as well. So uh, wow. it, it's, it's, it's grown a bit in scope and size and, uh, and reach. And so it's been a, a really fun project, but it, it started out at the University of Illinois. Yeah, I knew uh, a couple of people that uh, had taken the course and really enjoyed it and really enjoyed your insights into it. So very good. Yes. So you're like, are you still in Champaign then? Yeah, we're, we're still living in Champaign. We did not uh, move south to uh, Tennessee or Arizona or Florida. We stayed we stayed here in uh, in um, the uh, Champaign Urbana area. That's where the University of Illinois is located. It's a nice little uh, a nice area with the two cities, but against each other. And they probably have about 115, 20,000 people between okay. them. So when we have 50,000 students roll in every fall, it really jazzes up the the city and uh, <laughs> and uh, lots lots of activities you're going to go out for a friday night uh, yeah but eat you better get there early because there will be lots of activity uh, at the restaurants oh that's awesome i know uh a lot of the university towns especially have spent some time in madison and and in uh louisville or uh, less sorry lexington kentucky and yeah it's definitely a different vibe uh being around uh, a university town like that so yep um, and it's it's, it's it's a university town, unlike Madison, where they got the government and all this. I mean, you yep. know, it, it really revolves around the students. So lots of service industries. Yep. Yep. Uh, so this morning, I know you have a ton of knowledge and experience in, uh, I guess, nutrition and, and generally practically implementing nutrition programs on farm and, and making sure that they work for farmers and, and they get done. So I don't know what it's like in Champaign today, but... This week here in Ontario, it's been about 70 degrees, so it just gets my mind rolling about heat stress. So what are the, some of the things that we should start looking at now to kind of nutritionally and management-wise to start thinking about, you know, some of the uh, stress that these cows are going to go through here later this summer? Yeah, you're exactly right, Keith. Uh, we're going to see some warmer temperatures. In fact, uh, uh, this week here in Champaign, we're going to get over 80 degrees that's uh, that's good news because now we got our corn and soybean people in the field drying things out. We were fairly wet here, so we'll we'll take that warmer temperatures. But the good news for our dairy cows, humidity is quite low right now. That will change mm -hmm. in June uh, because, as we know, we will be looking at heat stresses based on a combination of humidity and temperature. And if you do that in Fahrenheit, uh, and you add those two numbers together and average them, then once it gets to be over 68, which is 68% Fahrenheit, that would be considered heat stress risk on cows. And at that time, you should be trying to help the cows out either by uh, cooling effects or certainly nutritional factors as well. In fact, Keith, and our dairy farmers would probably say, oh, it's not that hot yet, but your cow, remember, inside that cow is the equivalent of a furnace that you have running in your home. So it's generating huge amounts of heat that has to be dealt with besides what's coming out in the environment as well. So, so Keith, I, I think you're, you're right. There's several factors that come into play. First of all, you want to reduce the heat load on the animals. And that uh, may sound fairly mundane, but actually at some farms, it's a problem, uh, a shade. For example, shading, keeping the sun off these cows, uh, a big factor as far as that goes. Air movement. And of course, in some cases, that will be natural. That's good news, bad news. Sometimes our days are fairly still, so we got to move air to do some evaporative cooling on these cows as well. And, and certainly the work from Kansas uh, State clearly points out that also putting water on cows under heat stress conditions allows that water to evaporate. So it's very common to have, you know, to wet the cows down for maybe five or six or seven minutes. Then you have natural air or fans on these cows for 10 or 15 minutes. And Kansas State has got a formula worked out that depending on how hot the heat index is, how frequently that water needs to be turned on and turned off. And of course, uh, a lot of times that, that, that water is added at the feed bunk area. And so that encourages cows to stay at the feed bunk to consume feed, because that's one of the real challenges dairy farmers will face. And that is to try to maintain uh, a dry matter intake, because for every 10 degree in increase over uh, basically uh, 60, 60, 70 degrees, maintenance goes up about 10%. 
And, and that's energy that's got to be paid for uh, before you produce milk, uh, pregnancy, all those other factors as well. So certainly uh, we, we know that becomes a big factor. And so cows usually don't want to eat that extra uh, 10% mm -hmm. increase. Therefore, uh, milk production can really slump uh, significantly as far as that goes. So certainly un under heat stress, there are signs uh, of heat stress on cows. Uh, the temperature humidity index is obviously kind of the gold standard I like to use, but certainly cows will react. You'll see them panting, uh, rapid breathing, rapid breathing, uh, uh, for example, 70 to 80 breaths per minute versus a normal uh, 50 breaths per minute as far as that goes. Uh, severe heat stress, cows will be drooling. Uh, and in fact, uh, if they had been compromised, basically when they were calves, this goes all the way back to calves. If they had lung tissue comp compromised, you'll even see them almost like a dog uh, with their mouths open, trying to grasp air as far as that goes. So certainly that's the first yeah. thing in the management one, and that is to provide an environment that is cow comfortable, that cows will uh, want to stay in as far as that goes. In fact, some of our farmers who have pasture systems uh, once it gets to be about nine or 10 o'clock in the morning under heat stress, these cows will come back into the free stall area mm -hmm. or the barns because they know standing out there in the sun uh, is not a smart thing to be doing. And then at night, they will go out on pasture and eat pasture. But in the meantime, farmers need to supplement that with obviously feed bunk information on uh, nutrients as well. So certainly those are some of the signs to watch for. Uh, what's happening to the cow? Keith, it might be interesting to our farmers, uh, when cows are under heat stress, what happens biologically, physiologically, uh, the cows uh, divert blood to the exterior of the of the body. In other words, the, they want to get the blood going to the external source so they can dissipate, get rid of that heat, which means less blood flow to the to the uh, rumen. And, and that can change rumen pH. Typically, some research suggests that if the pH of a cow normally is sick, uh, under heat stress, it could be 5.8, drops two-tenths of a point. And some of you nutritionists out there know that that has a big impact on rumen fermentation, rumen dynamics, as far as that goes. It also can go, uh, reduce a, a flow, obviously, to the mammary gland, which can impact milk yield, and, of course, to the, to the uh, reproductive tract, which can affect fertility. And that's one of the signs under heat stress is that fertility slips on farms. Cows don't become pregnant on a timely matter. And in fact, in some of the More severe heat stress farmers just decide not to breed cows. They just hold off breeding cows because they just know the success ratio is going to be pretty, pretty low as far as that goes. Another sign could be uh, watching milk opponents. Pretty common here in the U.S. and I assume in Canada as well that we'll see butter fats drop two tenths of a point and milk protein drop a tenth of a point. And of course, that has real economic value because most of the milk in the U.S. is priced on kilos of fat and kilos of protein. So obviously, these are some of the signs there. Uh, perhaps, Keith, we should just comment some things farmers can do on the nutritional side. We talked about the barn, cow comfort, uh, sand bedding usually is a kind of a gold standard because the sand tends to cool the cows. Plus, the cow likes to recline. So she, mm -hmm. she's willing to lie down and, and rest. And of course, when cows are resting, they are ruminating. And that helps the rumen pH factors as well. So let's kind of wrap up this little discussion, Keith, and you may have some other questions as well. Uh, what are some of the, new, the, the feed factors, things we can do? Uh, the one thing I like to encourage our dairymen to look at, and that is to calculate their dietary cation difference. Now, this is not new news for dairy farmers because we use it extensively for dry cows. But now we're yep. talking about lactating cows. And we're looking at a plus 350 milliequivalents uh, of, of the per kilogram uh, here of in, in the ration dry matter. And then that is achieved by adding potassium carbonate and uh, potassium bicarbonate, sodium bicarbonate. These are buffers. And so what they do is that they buffer the room and that's the good news. They also provide extra sources of potassium and sodium, which are lost under the heat stress situation and maintains an optimal electrolyte balance in these cows as well. Uh, some of us adults also know that if we're heat stressed, maybe some Gatorade's the way to go because you re <laughs> replace some of those. those Not beer. <laughs> beer, probably. Although uh, growing up in Wisconsin, that's not all bad, but that'd no. be 
for different reasons, but uh, we can come back and visit that a bit later if, if we wish. But the DCAD is, is, is a big factor. And, and, and there's some really neat research on the University of Maryland showing the responses, some work from Georgia as well, showing the, the nice response on these cows, maintaining dry matter intake and electrolyte balance on these cows under, under heat stress conditions as well. And there are some commercial products on the marketplace that you can purchase, uh, what we call buffer packs for summer heat stress that work really quite well there. Second of all, we, we already touched on this, that we've got this furnace Heat inside this cow. And therefore, the question is, how can I keep that heat generation lowered? And of course, that has got forage quality written all over it. So if I have a high quality forage that is low, that is low in lower in fibers, high in NDF digestibilities, that will generate less heat for that cow. So therefore, forage quality can be a factor. And of course, in some cases, feeding a little bit less fiber itself bringing in more byproduct feeds, or in some cases, corn or barley, can also reduce the amount of heat increment or heat buildup inside that cow as being a factor as well. Uh, certainly another one. Yes, sir. Like, how does that affect the rumen pH, though? Like, if you say we're having a pH drop already with the summer heat stress, and I know fiber takes a lot more energy, which creates more heat to create your volatile fatty acids. Like, if we're trying to keep the rumen pH up, but then we're adding starch grains in there that create lactic acid. Like, how does that counteract it? Like, is that where we start to lean on the buffers? Yeah, exactly. To make sure right. DCAD numbers, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly right. In fact, the research was done by Clemson University. They looked at potassium carbonate and potassium chloride. And guess what? Potassium carbonate always won because of the buffer effect that comes into play. Both of them were potassium sources, but obviously the, bu yep. the buffer was key at this point. So you're exactly right, Keith. It, 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 it's a tricky situation. Now, some rations that are very high in fiber, there could be some wiggle room in there, but you're right. If we bring in more barley and more corn, that will put on a, a potential risk of dropping rumen pH coupled with the reduced blood flow that's occurring to the rumen area. And, and that can uh, cascade into a, a significant rumen acidosis. And that's the last thing you and I need under heat stress is, is a rumen acidosis already when dry matters are lowered and digestibilities of feed are down. So you are keen. You're exactly right. So you got to be very careful how much starch or barley you bring in. That's why some farmers will say, well, we'll take out some of our, our lower quality forages and bring in soy hulls or corn mm -hmm. gluten or beet pulp or products like that, because it it's a very digestible NDF, but it doesn't produce doesn't produce lactic acid. And as you point out, that's, that's the one that can really hammer uh, the rumen pH as far as that goes in, in the feeding program. So another choice, and you say, well, how do I get, if I don't do that starch and sugar route, what else can I do? Well, you could you, you substitute some added oils and fats. And that's the good news because by and large, they will not generate any heat. They by and large are rumen inert. So as a result, we get extra energy to these cows. That's the good news, Keith. The bad news is, wow. Fats and oils are really expensive <laughs> yeah. because uh, some of it's being used into biofuels and some of it is it's just expensive resource as far as that goes as well. So certainly those would be some of the things you want to make sure the protein levels are balanced. The last thing I have I don't need is extra uh, degradable protein that has to be converted over to urea and yeah, then and excreted okay. out of the uh, system. So there's another energy draw that comes into play. So make sure the proteins are right uh, here. And then of course, uh, uh, trying to get as much glucose and here's that double-edged sword again. There's some clear, uh, clear data showing that uh, glucose and our heat stress cows are a plus uh, because that maintains uh, milk yield because of lactate uh, lactose production, uh, but also uh, it helps in the terms of reproduction. So certainly uh, using some of the ionophores can be a real plus to help this, this glucose status. And the Iowa State research is clear. Heat stress can have something called leaky gut. And leaky mm -hmm. gut means that the, the, the intestine allows for the risk of bacteria to penetrate into the bloodstream. And of course, you and I both know they'll put a real inflammation and stress on the cow as well. So big challenges under heat stress, and it's coming. It's coming here. Wisconsin did a study a couple of years ago, the vet school saying in Wisconsin, heat stress in Wisconsin costs about $74 per cow 
annually. So the question is, well, how many fans can you buy if you got a hundred cows with $7,400? And so uh, some of these interventions of fans and water uh, cost money, but boy, the payback can be quite significant. Yeah, that's the, uh, it's, it's just one of those interesting things. Like we talk about it every year and it rears its ugly head and it seems like we're always caught not being ready. Like, I think there's super like just management things you can do in the farm. Like, like from a nutritional strategy. Yeah. We could talk about buffers and we could talk about inert fats, like palm, like C16 and things like that. But if you go into the barn this time of year and there's bird nests in the fan, the fans are going to kick on if they're on any kind of automated system right now. So like making sure general maintenance and things like that is up to date, I think are some of these things that we have to start with. Like we got to, pick out the like i don't know you like to say the low-hanging fruit first and then kind of maybe circle back and focus on some of these other things so yeah and and keith you're exactly right i mean uh there's some new there's some data came out a couple of months ago just showing fan capacity and if fans are dirty the reduced air movement and yeah. so some very, very, very straightforward, low hanging fruit, as you mentioned, uh, uh, such as uh, fan capacity, the cleanliness of the fan, uh, air entrances and exits, as far as that goes, all that come into play as far as that goes. And we know cow comfort is keen because of these cross ventilated barns. Uh, they'll drop the temperature almost eight to 10 degrees in these barns just because they move huge amounts of air through those barns along with the shading and the fresh air, getting the humidity out of the barns. Uh, the farmers, while those are quite expensive to build, uh, mm-hmm. really re- good success in the summer with these cross-ventilated barns. And some of these tunnel-ventilated barns would fall in that category as well. Um, and just to kind of shift a little bit to the right here, like we got to think about dry cows too. Like, is there any nutritional strategies for them? Because buffers are going against anything that we want to do with the dry cow. Like, especially if we're on a decad diet, it's not like we're going to go add extra potassium or sodium bicarbonate or anything like that into these rations. Is there anything we can do with the dry cows in the summer, like from a nutritional point of view to kind of mitigate some of this heat stress? Because I don't know, like, I would assume that in Illinois, you're doing a lot of the same things that we're here in Ontario as we feed a lot of straw, you know, not a lot of corn silage, maybe a little bit of haylage. And these are big, bulky, fibrous rations. So, and then you couple that with a calf, that's like a little furnace center. Like we're just like, we're just causing so much stress on these dry cows in the summer. Like how, how, how can we get around that? Well, Keith, you've, uh, you're 100% spot on. Uh, uh, some of our hands are tied. I think the high straw diets have been super successful here in the United States and Canada. And that just flies against everything we just talked about here in, yeah. in, in, the, in the last few minutes. And yet we know those diets really help in transition management, metabolic disorders, maintaining dry matter intakes after calving, all the pluses. So I don't think personally, I don't think we can move away from the high straw diet at this stage of the game. The Florida work is clear that if you you got to put that heat abatement on these dry, which is what you do for lactating cows, you got to do it for dry cows. And Dr. Jeff Dahl, who, who spearheaded that research down there, said that uh, certainly in the close-up pen would be critical, but certainly the whole dry period, if these cows could have water on them, fans, shade, because a lot of times dry cows are outside. Uh, they don't have that same protection, if you want to use that, that we see on our, on our lactating side of the equation. You're right, we can't come in with our buffers here. But uh, there are some uh, newer buffers on the marketplace. One is uh, one that is uh, taken out of the sea in, uh, in, and over in the UK. And uh, that is a calcium magnesium buffer that uh, product that does have buffering ca- capability that would not affect the decad. Plus, it brings an available source of calcium and magnesium limestone would bring and that could be a plus also in transition cow diets when we're doing the negative decad now remember listeners yeah. dry cows close-up cows need a negative decad like a minus 50 or lactating cows need a plus 
350. So be very careful that you and your nutritionists uh, get these numbers spot on as far as that goes in the program. But you're right. You can't use potassium carbonate and potassium sodium carbonate, sodium bicarb because of the decap. Plus some of these minerals, potassium and sodium can also cause utter edema. And our first lactation calving heifers are a little more susceptible to utter edema than some of our mature cows, but certainly that can be another risk with, uh, with sodium and potassium. So certainly uh, uh, the dry cow, don't forget the dry cows. Boy, the research is clear in terms of size of calf, level of milk production after calving, uh, the, size, uh, the amount of antibodies being produced by the cow. So certainly we got to make sure that we maintain a good diet in there. But some of the tools we just talked about for heat stress, we can't uh, plug in very easily into, into these uh, into these into these cows. What about heifers? There's not been a lot of research done with heifers. A lot of heifers are in in uh, dry lots and outside under pasture conditions, and and certainly um, they, they would have that some of those same taxes. I call it a tax. When maintenance goes up, that's like you and I paying taxes. Uh, mm -hmm. They have to be paid first before they will grow. So certainly under summer conditions. Under heat stress, you might see a slowing down of growth. And these animals, we want these animals growing somewhere around eight to 900 grams every day uh, in life. And under heat stress, pretty good chance they're going to eat less and they're going to in increase their maintenance requirement. Therefore, that growth rate will drop off, which means uh, heifers not growing at, at an optimal rate. Older heifers, slower coming to the milking herd, and there's a financial drain there as well. Yeah, it's... Uh... And it's funny, like, I think you mentioned Jeffrey Dahl there, like, he was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was the one that did the work that the heat stress in the calf in utero carries out through its, its productive life and its offspring's productive life, which I just find fascinating. Like, how, like, first off, how do you measure that? <laughs> it's, it's, and, just, it's really amazing. Yeah, that, that epigenetics, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up, Keith, because not only did the did the dry cow suffer, but it looks like she has imprinted her calf that she mm -hmm. produces two or three liters less milk every day, two years later. And of course, they track that by uh, uh, some of that is genomically traced. And of course, some of it is just simply following these calves uh, two years later and having enough animals to be able to measure that kind of a difference, but it's, it's all published and it's, it's there. So um, we're seeing other factors that can also have impact on the, uh, on, on, on the calf as well, uh, depending on management, nutrition, feeding programs, pretty neat stuff. Um, to talk a little bit about ingredients, I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts lately and choline seems to be a very reoccurring product that you know i think academia has really been focusing on like is there a fit for something like a choline in the summer to try and help with some of this heat stress mitigation because i know it yeah. helps with yeah like glucose and and everything else and liver function and like is that something that producers should maybe be looking at like i know there's a cost to it and it's not it's it's not cheap to use, but in the grand scheme of things, you're only going to use it for maybe six weeks of that entire lactation cycle. Exactly right. So, you, yeah, you, you you hit a home run there. Uh, in fact, I I don't think it is heat stress related. We are recommending choline into the transition period, which, as you point out, 21 days before calving to 21 days after calving, or in that fresh cow pen. And it looks like it's really going to do a couple things for me. It's 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 going to mobilize any risk of uh, a fat deposition that could occur in the liver or under ketosis challenges as far as that goes. And you and I both know that healthy liver is a healthy cow. There's no question about mm -hmm. that. Well, I think there's a real plus there. Uh, it also has some label methyl groups in there, which has some impacts on uh, inflammation. It also has some impact potential potentially on uh, other uh, key functions in the in 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 the dairy cow itself so i think we just and yes it's a, it was one of the more expensive feed additives it's kind of a pseudo b vitamin uh, typically you're going to be looking at 15 grams per day uh, keep your eyes and ears open keith uh, there's some new research coming out that's probably going to bump that number up even a little bit higher than that but certainly i would have that in my transition period 
Another one that's gaining some traction besides, the, and that's rumen-protected choline because the rumen bacteria just destroy it. So that's what makes it fairly pricey because it's, it's somehow either fat embedded or had capsulated in some type of a polymer that is pH sensitive and releases uh, in the uh, uh, in in the in the digestive tract uh, further down outside of the rumen itself. Uh, another one to mention, and that is, I'm pretty keen on it, especially under heat stress, is chromium. Uh, chromium is uh, another uh, uh, vitamin, uh, excuse me, mineral that will actually increase blood glucose and and who and help with insulin sensitivity. And so again, that's a big factor in transition diets, and certainly under leaky gut situations, heat stress could be another important factor when we look at that glucose requirement for those cows as well. So both of those, uh, to me, if I were a dairy farmer in Illinois or probably in Canada uh, under under um, heat stress and normal conditions, I just putting it. I'm just putting recommending both of those products in the transition diet. It is interesting. There's some uh, data coming out on the rumen protected choline that it looks like it has an impact on mammary cell development because when you pull that choline out at day 21, 42, or out of the fresh cow when the cow is going to the other pen, that two kilo milk increase is there for the entire yeah. lactate. And, and, and so the, the, there's some more of that epigenetics that may be occurring, that choline is, is, is literally turning on the appropriate genes. So the mammary gland will continue to produce that higher level of milk. Because that, that's very eye-opening data to show those curves. They, they just literally are two kilograms apart, uh, the control versus the uh, rumen-protected uh, choline products. Pretty impressive I know. And the other thing, too, and which is kind of a, I'm not sure if you call it a passion of mine, but trying to figure out colostrum yields and there's some crazy data coming out with choline and colostrum yields too and which which definitely gets impacted by daylight but also by heat stress yeah so it makes exactly. me think about that as well right so exactly right keith you're right on spot on your end top of your game that there is there's impact uh, on colostrum quality and and probably also obviously that has big impacts on the calf if the calf is coming in smaller and now I, I need to have even higher quality colostrum protect that uh, quote-unquote smaller calf yeah and like when you're looking at some of these additives like what's the the evaluation of the feed cost versus ROI that like you would go through Mike yeah. Well, I, I guess, Keith, when I, when I look at feed additives, I'm, I'm looking certainly on re return on investment. That's a big factor. I want that to be at least two to one. I say that because not all cows respond to this feed additive. Sometimes is due to uh, like uh, days in milk, uh, gestation uh, impacts. And uh, so not all cows understand the research. Don't read the book, as we would say, as far as that goes. So certainly, for example, if I'm going to use a yeast product, that's going to cost me somewhere in that six or eight cents uh, U.S. per day. Uh, I'm looking for a 16 or 18 cent return. And of course, the data says in most studies, you're going to see somewhere around one and a half kilos of milk. Well, your listeners can do the math pretty quickly. Here in the U.S., that's almost a six to one return. Our milk price isn't nearly as favorable as what we have here in Canada. So certainly that, that becomes a big factor. Number two, I think you got to understand, well, why am I putting it in? Uh, am I putting in uh, the buffer because of uh, decad or am I putting in because I want to impact uh, dry matter intake and digestibility or a room? So what are you expecting to see? And I think it's clear uh, the, the the buffers. Uh, and again, remember, we have all kinds of buffers out there. We have uh, sodium bicarb, uh, sodium sesquicarbonate, potassium carbonate. These are all buffers. The mine coming out of the North Sea up there. These are all buffers that can come into play and, and have a pretty good return on investment as well. And, and then, of, of, of course, ask for the research. To me, uh, you, you need to ask, uh, uh, has this product been studied? Has it published? And of course, the real tool I love to see, Keith, and that's what we call a meta-analysis, which means they look at six, eight, 10, 12, 14 different journal published part, uh, research and, and put them, melt it all together and say, the bottom line is... Uh, we expect to see these kinds of responses to occur on your farms, because obviously, if you're trying to find a two pound milk response on your farm, good luck, because so yeah. many things go on. Well, cows Each fluctuate that in a day. Oh, yeah. Like you could have a dry matter out and boom, like it's it's there goes your extra kilo dry matter that that cow's not eating that day. Right. Like, 
exactly right. And one kilo of dry matter, I think our listeners know, relates to about two kilos of milk. So obviously, if I, you know if my cow eats a half a kilogram, more or less dry matter, that that and a day or two later, there should be a milk response. They're either up or down. So, uh, you know, you just, and mastitis, cows come in fresh, you know, so suddenly the bulk tank is up a hundred, uh, up a hundred kilos. Well, four fresh cows came in and all of a sudden they're added to the tank, you know, so certainly these factors come into play as, as well. And then of course, you got to be able to track it on your farm. In other words, uh, regardless what the uh, Guelph says or the University of Illinois says, it's got to function on your farm. And, and so, uh, uh, and then that may be milk yield, that may be milk components, that may be reproductive performance, that may be somatic cell count. There are a number, several new additives in the market that appear to have impact on immune function. And, and Keith, that's going to be huge in the U.S. because uh, I think you folks in Canada are ahead of us on that. But uh, starting in June, there's no over-the-counter antibiotics anymore. You cannot go to uh, a farm store and just buy penicillin anymore. It all has to be scripted by the veterinarian. So therefore, animal health is going to become uh, a real focal, focal point here in the future as well. And some of these additives play right into that. Like in Mike's world, what are the the no-brainer additives? Yeah. Like you see, like, because like you can look at the data from universities, but until you put that into a commercial application, I don't know if you, because what they show you at the university, I, like just a thought I use is like, you might get 60 to 70% of that response in a commercial situation and correct me if i'm wrong because you've definitely seen way more of this stuff you have a product that gets a hundred percent response i get suspicious yeah <laughs> you know because uh you'll, you'll see studies and which maybe uh uh 10 20 percent of the of the research didn't see a response and this is the research study that's very carefully controlled so you can expect uh going to farms your number might be spot on as far as that goes as well but i i have my list and i have them in a priority order and so if I was consulting here in a herd in Canada, I, I think the Anaphores uh, for, is, is a no-brainer. Uh, Anaphores, Rumenzin would be the product, uh, commercial name. Uh, there are different sources of Rumenzin out there as well, or, or Rumenzin-like products. But what it does is that it manipulates the rumen fermentation. And so it increases the propionate production, decreases the breakdown the, of, of the uh, of, of the uh, preformed proteins. It's a coccidiostat as well. So it has roles. I would argue just about every animal on the farm could benefit from an ionophore out there in the feeding program. And the cost benefit ratio is huge. It improves feed efficiency. And every time we get an improvement of feed efficiency of a 10th of a point, uh, that's worth in the U.S. about 40 cents more profit as far as that goes. And ionophore is an antibiotic. I think uh, our dairy farmers understand that. And of course, the good news is it does not get absorbed. If it did, then it could no longer be marketed in the U.S. or Canada because it would adulterate the milk. So it stays in the digestive tract. It's an antibiotic. And there's no way I could do that. I, I don't know how. And that's where the future is going to go, Keith. I think in the future, we're going to be looking at uh, the rumen microbes, uh, you know, the which are the most effective rumen microbes there and how can we manipulate those rumens so that the cows get optimal VFA production, digestibility, amino acid yields coming from that. And certainly uh, a rumenzin, uh, an four hits that one right there. Then going number two is silage inoculant. I think that's a no brainer. Anybody who is making silage today, I think has to take control and say, I'm going to dictate the fermentation profile in that mass of feed. Uh, man, forages have really gone up in, in price. And yet that's one of our solutions in 2023 here in, in, in Illinois. And that is uh, forages. Uh, forages are raised on farms. You control that. And silage inoculants direct the fermentation, speeding it up getting the proper types of VFA being produced here, therefore retains dry matter recovery, uh, typically about 3% uh, more dry matter recovery. That's like getting an extra uh, out of 100 acres. That's like getting an extra three acres of, of, of crop and increases digestibility. And that's 3% of the good stuff, like your starches and sugars. Exactly right. Now that's why digestibility is up two or three percent. So Kansas State says if you look at just the value of nutrients, of course, the nutrients when they did this study, that, that was a three to one payback. 
Uh, today with the prices of feedstuffs, probably that's more like four to five payback. And then uh, Dr. Keith Bolton, who unfortunately passed away recently, uh, you put that through a high producing cow in Canada and she'll add another uh, two or three uh, points on top of that. So the payback could be a seven to eight to one. So it's uh, it's um, just amazing. Now there's all kinds of cyanogenics out there. So back, remember Keith, we talked about? Ask for the research. And yeah. there are some out there now that have enzymes that will help break down in nutrient detergent fiber. And that would be a plus as far as that goes. Other ones have uh, uh, other sources. Uh, for example, uh, lactobacillus uh, uh, bacteria that uh, can preserve high moisture and corn silage, uh, the buchner, the lactobacillus buchneri. Uh, that one will specifically improve starch retention and prevents secondary fermentation. And that's becoming a bigger problem as herds gets bigger. And that is to avoid a secondary fermentation once we open up that bag or bunker or perhaps uh, not so much in silos, but certainly in, in, in bunkers and piles. And, and certainly what happens there is that uh, there's wild yeast. And the minute they get a shot at oxygen, they say, let's start growing again. And they will uh, break down the lactic acid. And that is what's uh, for, and that's preserved your feed. And now the moles will say, well, the pH now is not a factor. We can now grow and evil things can happen when moles can grow in silages, especially some of our highly, uh, highly soluble fiber, uh, soluble carbohydrate sources out there. Well, it's like a feedstock for them. You're just adding, you got moisture, you got sugar, and you have heat. So it's just a, it's the perfect little Petri dish for bacterial growth. So our third, our third one, Keith is in, we'll probably stop there. We, we have a list of six that I really like. The third one is the organic trace minerals. And some of your people will uh, wonder how that sneaks in there. Organic trace minerals are really not a true additive, but yet uh, they, they kind of fall in that category. Organic trace minerals, especially selenium is, is a big one. Chromium is another one. Uh, zinc and copper are other ones listed as well. That's got an immunity and cell function written all over it. Uh, number four is yeast products because it stabilizes the room and environment, reduces lactic acid buildup. Uh, buffers are number five. Oh, well, that's the most According to the U.S. survey here, buffers are the most common feed additive here. And yet uh, I, I have it fifth because you and I can change starch levels. We can change particle size in diets. We can feed more forages. There's ways you and I can manipulate the diet that maybe we can keep that rumen pH at an optimal level. Whereas sides inoculants, you are directing the fermentation. Ionophores, you're affecting the rumen uh, fermentation. And so certainly that's why it's there. And then biotin is my sixth choice. And again, biotin is a B vitamin. So perhaps if your listeners are saying, well, Hutchins has not a true additive. Uh, I understand, but biotin has some neat research out of Canada, U.S., Ohio State, and Wisconsin showing a really nice benefit to cost ratio. Is that biotin, is that a protected source or ruminant? Like, is it a free source? Like, because <laughs> there's two different things like like there's the room of protected versions where it's generally a blend and then there's just free biotin where you can just feed it and some of it may get degraded in the room and some of it might not you might see a response you might not i He's a great point. And now you open up on another challenging area. And that is there is some research. Most guy, most people are feeding the, the, the raw, I call it the raw biotin. So it's not rumen protected. The research says 60% will be destroyed by the rumen microbes. Uh, there is a firm in Canada that has rumen protected biotin. And their research shows that you can feed about half the normal level and you'll see a better response with it. So uh, the rumen protected B vitamins are, are coming in the marketplace and are being used uh, in some farms now to because the bacteria just uh, just destroy the B vitamins. They just use it as a source of nutrients. Yes, they produce they do produce B vitamins, but they also destroy some of the feed ingredient sources as well. So at this point, most of the biotin in the U.S. being fed is not ruined protected, but it's out there. And it's coming. And of course, you got to look at cost benefit ratios again. You know, what does it cost to protect the biotin versus feeding maybe half the, the normal level? Yeah. And I think that's a discussion to have with your feed advisor and nutritionist. Like, I think you just have to sit down and, and weigh with the pros and cons and can it get done correctly? And, and, and what's my return on investment on it? Because like you said, like 
if you're called saying, you know, you're going to get two extra pounds or an extra kilo of milk, well, I can change the factors on farm that will affect that pretty quickly, right? Yep, exactly right. Exactly so, right. And then, of course, the uh, other added for the, for the uh, we're already talking about chromium and uh, choline, but certainly the, uh, the the DCAD anionic products, I think, is a no-brainer. Uh, although they're not widely used right now, but there are several new products on the marketplace as well. But to maintain blood calcium in these transition cows certainly is going is key, no question about it. Not critical for first lactation animals. And some of us sometimes, oh, why is it not important for first lactation or heifers are calving the first time? Well, Keith, the, the research suggests, first of all, uh, these animals can mobilize bone more quickly than older animals. And second of all, they absorb more from the gut. So uh, if you got a, a DCAD product in the diet that may cost you anywhere from uh, in the U.S. 60 cents per day to as much as $2 a day, obviously, uh, the uh, if you keep the you don't need to feed it to the heifers. And that would be just a cost savings because probably about a, a third of the animals calving in on a farm each year are going to be first calf heifers uh, on, on, on dairies as well. So, again, question is. Can you do that uh, based on the size of your farm and your feeding system? Obviously, what I can do with 1,000-cow dairy is different than what I can do with 100-cow dairy. Yeah, and I know I was uh, – last night I was kind of looking at your um, – the market survey that you were looking at. I think Hordes maybe did it. And yes. I was really surprised by DCAD. Like, I thought it was a lot higher uptake in the U.S. than what it actually is. Yeah, and and, and that that's based on a survey that's done by Hordes Dairyman of the Reader's. And so the question, Keith, is I got a feeling, just a sneaky feeling that uh, some farmers don't know they're feeding it. They're nutritionists <laughs> in a feeding yeah. program because it's pretty much standard. But the number is like 15 or 14 percent. Yeah, low. but and that's yeah. that's of producers, too, not of cows being fed, which are that's two very different numbers. Right. Yep, so exactly right. Because in other words, uh, the number of, you know, the number of people surveyed in New Mexico where the average herd size is 2,600 cows is the average yeah. herd size in New Mexico. Yeah. And you go to Pennsylvania and their average herd size is about 90, you know, and so, yeah. so your point's well taken. It's, it's, it's farms, not cows. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about, and I, it's, I think it's a lot more apparent when feed costs get high, but what are the costs outside of the ration and how can we kind of, how can we kind of mitigate that or how can producers implement things on farm that, you know, help save them some money because I could talk about shrink all day, but I, a lot of times it falls on deaf ears. Yep, exactly right. Well, I tell you, Keith, that, that, that's a really big challenge. No question about it. Uh, we know feed costs make up typically anywhere from 50 to 60 uh, percent of the cost of producing milk here in the U.S. Uh, that number will be quite as high in Canada because it's related to the... the, 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 the I, I think we're about 35-ish yep. percent, roughly. And it's just because we have a higher milk price. Yeah. Because exactly. feed price isn't that much different than the U.S. So if you look at what's after feed costs, what comes next? And obviously, heifer raising comes in, in most cases, number two, the cost there. And so there are some things that you and I can do or your listeners can do on, on, on heifers. First of all, uh, historically, we've had 20% more heifers on farms than we actually needed. And so as a result, farmers said, well, we're going to calve them out. I don't want to lose that really good genetic heifer. So now I've got to call my older cows. And Keith, I think something that's coming here in the future is longevity. We've got to get another lactation out of our cows in the U.S. Those folks in the EU, European Union, they are there. In other words, they'll average about three and a half lactations per cow. We're at two and a half. Part of that is because we got all these heifers as far as that goes. And of course, here in the U.S., and I'm sure maybe in Canada, it's not it's not a profit center. In other words, it's costing us about $2,500 to, to raise a heifer. And uh, you can go and buy heifers uh, from farms for $1,800. So obviously, you know, you, you, you lose money on every heifer you sell in that sense of the word. Now, uh, when I say $2,500, that's data coming from the University of Wisconsin. That includes the value of the heifer calf, which is quite low right now in the U.S. Also, a death loss, uh, fertility losses along the way, uh, cost 
you got this animal for two years and all you're doing is paying interest. In other words, she's all she's doing is not returning anything but manure to you at that, at that stage of the game. So a lot of interest now on beef on dairy. Uh, I was up in Canada and uh, the number up there was $350 for an Angus Holstein cross. You know, that's uh, probably two or three weeks of age. And in the U.S., that number would be about $250. So certainly that's another alternative here. And of course, um, so certainly getting the right number of heifers uh, that you're going to use. And you can, there's formulas that you can get looking at culling rate, uh, fertility rates, getting heifers pregnant, uh, uh, death loss, uh, pre-weaning on calves, and then potential expansion. We say whatever that number is. Uh, if that's on your farm, 50 heifers each year, then add 10% uh, more to that just in case you have a health issue or uh, you need to cull cows or whatever the case is. is or expand. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. number, number three is labor. And of course, up in Canada, you folks are addressing that with robotic milkers. I mean, holy smokers, you are probably, certainly in North America, you're way ahead of our dairymen in terms of percent farms that have robotic milkers there, but labor is becoming a huge factor, especially with some of the immigration policies that are troubling here in the U.S. at this stage of the game. So anything we can do to lower uh, labor costs are, are, are going to be huge. No, no question about that. And that may be using some technologies uh, such as uh, uh, feed pushers, electronic feed pushers that push up feed uh, instead of having a, a person uh, driving a tractor or whatever the case is to push feed up in front of these cows here. And of course, the ability of, of um, automated milking is, is huge at this stage of the game. The good news, Keith, is we just saw a new release this morning. In fact, before uh, taping today's program, the fertilizer prices have dropped significantly here in the U.S., they're not as cheap as they were a couple of years ago, but certainly they've come down 45 to 60 percent. So, you know, that, that's that's a real cost savings as well. Uh, animal health will be a factor. I mean, uh, uh, if you have death losses that are over five or six percent on your farm, you're above average. And of course, now you've lost a two thousand or three thousand dollar animal that cannot be called. So certainly uh, managing uh, animal health and death losses are, are always going to be a factor on farm. But the question is, what is what is that number there? So uh, my take home message, Keith, your points well taken. But the problem is I cannot control the price of diesel fuel or taxes or interest rates. Um, I do control, in some cases, many of my feed inputs, such as forages, and in my farms in Illinois, corn, and in some cases, uh, roasted soybeans is replacing a, uh, the protein supplement. So I, I think our farmers, and I think the magic word in 2023 for your listeners is going to be what I call the, uh, the profit index. And we are really going to be squeezed right now, Keith. We're down 10 to 15% on the price of milk. And yet all these other input costs are, are certainly not dropping outside of the fertilizer. Uh, everything else stays, corn prices are stubborn. They're not going to move. Uh, just depends when these planters get out in the field and how much rain we get in July and August, what kind of crop we're going to have. So certainly these other costs there are things that you and I can look at. And some of them you can control, like your number of heifers. Some of them you, you can't control. Uh, but animal health is, is going to be another factor. We need our veterinarians, obviously, but if I can keep my, my costs in line, that I don't need to have quite as much uh, treatment on farms, that's going to be a plus as well. What are your thoughts on um, programs, like feeding programs that somebody would have on their mixer? Like a, I don't know, like a TMR tracking software program. Like, is that something that you look at? Is that pretty much the norm? Yeah I, I think, yeah, I think on our bigger farms, just about all of them will have a, a TMR mixer a feed tracker. There's about four or five standard ones that are out there. They all work pretty much the same way. And of course, the, the power there is to reduce shrink loss. What do you mean by shrink loss? Well, you know, if I miss uh, uh, by 100 pounds of, a, uh, of an ingredient going into a, a mixer, and if that ingredient is expensive, like a protein supplement that carries my minerals and vitamins, huge huge cost. If I overfeed, that's a cost. And if I underfeed, my cows will tell me a day or two later that the, my feeder didn't get the job done. So it's a tremendously powerful tool because I think, 
Keith, um, one of the most valuable people on my farm is going to be the feeder, the person who mixes the ration accurately, delivers it at the right amount to the right pen. That's another challenge. That's why some farmers have gone to one group TMRs because they're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not sure we can mix three different rations every day and get them to the right group of animals as far as that goes. So certainly uh, that person is very powerful. Also, it allows us to uh, determine if in fact we should be putting in 625 pounds of this supplement uh, are we close to that number how close are mm -hmm. we getting that number there and of course these big scoops of silage or i mean you up the big loaders, uh, coming through and dropping in you know uh, several tons in, into these mixers and so uh, we got to be close we have to be close on that number as well so i i think it's if, if you can uh, uh, usually we tend to see it on larger herds because of uh, the need to uh, reduce the risk of errors shrink inventory control you need to know how many more days do i have because again with our trucking situation some cases uh, it used to be well we could call the female and tomorrow it'd be there well nowadays uh, some of those ingredients may not be at the female on a timely manner so that's another thing inventory control uh, that these units can can follow as well so pretty powerful pretty powerful tool to allow us to fine-tune uh, our feeding program and basically what i call uh, shrink reduction and shrink. Uh, there's a study been done several years ago and, and shrink is costing us anywhere from 35 to 45 cents per cow per day. Shrink could be a waybacks, uh, feed that's damaged, blown away, incorrectly done, uh, damaged with rain or snow, uh, bird damage, um, uh, you, you name it, there's all kinds of visible and indivisible, invisible losses that, that occur out there on dairy farms. And certainly that whole area shrink is one that needs to continue to be emphasized and and somehow monitored and in some cases measured. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where we get into feed costs and a lot of people look at the ration costs, but I think by measuring what you're bringing on the farm and what actually goes through cows. I think that's a big step in, in the right direction because it's funny. I just laugh all the time because as nutrition professionals, we're looking at the second and third decimal point and the farmers feed into the nearest shovel full or exactly. payload or bucket full, right? Like yeah. there's, the, <laughs> it's the oldest adage in the feed industry. There's the ration on paper, the ration that gets mixed and the ration that gets fed and none of them are created equally. That's right. Right. So. Yep. Exactly right. And yet, you know, Keith, I still argue. Uh, whoever you're do, do, is doing your nutrition work, uh, they, they got to have a, what I call a Roman model program. And we now have the technology out there that uh, very fairly accurately estimates uh, what's happening in the Roman with nutrients going in and trying to predict the results. And so uh, we have a brand new model that came out of Cornell. The new Cornell uh, version seven is just coming out now. NASM, that's the new NRC model, is available. And the good news, it's free. It's it's fairly um, detailed. Like you said, there's way too many decimal points for a country boy from Green Bay, Wisconsin. <laughs> It's, it's all there, but they, they're looking at amino acid yields. They're looking at different fatty acid levels. They're looking at environmental impacts, how much nitrogen and phosphorus is being uh, put into uh, in, into the waste system as far as that goes. So, and of course, it, it, it varies dry matter intake and rates of passage. So the very powerful tools to at least give us an idea of what kind of rations we can put together on farms in Canada. We've came a long way from the Pearson Square. Isn't that amazing? I can remember, <laughs> I'll update myself here, Keith, but we did rations by putting in cards into a telephone and running rations at Michigan State University. And then they they spit out the answers, a long distance phone call number. And you got to be kidding me nowadays. I mean, the power you have in our eye and our, our cell phones are, are just amazing to where we were maybe 30 years ago. And in terms of our, our big labs with computers to do data crunching, just amazing. So things keep changing. No question about that. Well, Mike, I, uh, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I know we're getting kind of close to the, to the time here and uh, we've covered a ton of topics today. Was there anything that one message that you want to get out to the, to the dairy producers and the listeners of the podcast uh, and that Mike's absolute take home. 
Well, uh, you know, not many people will hear this podcast probably in the U.S., but certainly... Uh, uh, Actually, about a third of my listeners are U.S.-based. Fantastic. Well, that's good yep. news. Anyway, I, I, just to be redundant, I, I think the, uh, the pr- trying to maintain profitability in the first six months is going to be critical at this point. Uh, and, and so sharpen up and be keenly aware of opportunities to find some of those uh, extra dollars on, on the farm. The cropping season is a big unknown in Canada and in the U.S. of where this is going to go at this point. And then the impact of inflation. Inflation in terms of uh, new facilities, expansion, uh, exporting of dairy products, um, we in the U.S. are exporting 18% of our solids leave this country. And I tell you, if countries can't buy uh, cheese and butter and dairy products, then it bags up in the U.S. And you and I both know, Keith, what's going to happen to the price of milk if we start uh, mm-hmm. dropping our exports. So lots of challenges, I guess, I see in 2023, both in Canada and in the in the U.S. here for our, our dairy industry, and of which some of them we, you and I can control, Keith, but some of them we just kind of have to play uh, – play ball as we'd say and see where see see where the the ball lands all right thanks mike i uh like i said earlier i truly appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your expertise and your in your insights into the industry you're you're a legend in the industry and i uh i really uh had a fun time chatting with you today Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Schoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera. 